Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today, Leia Salonga. Welcome, Leia. Tony-winning star of Miss Saigon, the star of uh, Flower Drum Song, born in the Philippines, and about to make your Carnegie Hall solo debut. Yeah. That's exciting. It's very exciting. I mean, what performer doesn't dream of performing at Carnegie Hall at least once in their lifetime? I mean, I can, you know, once once I do the debut, I can look back on it <laughs> and say, okay, I can die now. I've done it. <laughs> You've done that. Well, it's kind of a long road from the Philippines, from Manila, where you were born, uh-huh. to Carnegie Hall. The concert is Monday, the 7th of November. Yes. And uh, how different is the concert going to be from your regular concerts? I mean, you've toured before, but this yeah. is Carnegie Hall. Richard J. Alexander is coming in mm-hmm. to to direct this. So, so for people who may have seen you before, is there different material to look forward to? There is to? different material to look forward to. I mean, there was quite a bit of brainstorming, either on the phone or via the Internet. Thank goodness for email. Um, we would write and say, okay, this is the, this is the song that I liked. Uh, what do you think of this? I think this might, this might be a sweet song for you. Let's check it out with our musical director, with Kevin Stites. Um, you know, let's, let's see how it sits in your voice. Let's see how it sits in this key and, and all that kind of stuff. We did a lot of, a lot of that at the beginning of this week. And just to kind of figure out how to map things, what songs will be right for the opening of the show, what songs will be right for the end of act one, end of act two, how to start this, what's in the middle, how do we arc the show, that, all that kind of stuff. And I think it'll be different from the other shows that I had done. Um, when I would tour, I guess it'll be a little more cohesive um, in a way that there's another so another outside person helping me to figure out what, how to draw this roadmap of of a show. Um, and I guess with a lot of the other material that he's been suggesting, things that I would never even dream of. So, so, such know. as? Uh, certainly show tunes, but what else? Yeah, certainly show tunes. And then there would be stuff from other concerts that I had done prior um, as back as five years ago that he would watch or listen to. And he'll be like, oh, my God, you have to sing that song again. You absolutely have to do this again um, because it's, 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 the orchestration is sublime because your performance was wonderful. You have to repeat it. And it's stuff that I would either put in the back of my mind or not perform again because, okay, that concert was done. We really won't need to be performing that material anymore. Um, and so it kind of wasn't on my mind until he brings it up and and then I'm like oh my gosh that's right oh we yeah totally we should do that totally we should try this again and and see where it and see how the interpretation might be different so um yeah so, so that that's are, but are we talking like you know standards and jazz some standards yeah, um believe it or not some pop but orchestrated in such a way that it's right for a 28 piece orchestra any hip hop or rap or anything oh absolutely not no, you wouldn't do that at carnegie hall <laughs> no i'm i'm just that would be i think too much of a shock for people who might be expecting show tunes and get that it's like what we're expecting broadway show tunes i'm walking out of here i know i, I don't i don't want to cause a stir well not too much of one <laughs> how do you gauge the interpretation of a song because certainly you know, we all think of you as a stage performer, and the interpretation of any song is part of a character that right. you're playing. Do you have to take that same approach when you do when you do a concert performance of material that um, may not even be from a show? Well, I have to keep in mind that when I'm singing something in concert, um, with the exception, say, of um, 
anything from Les Mis or anything from Saigon, where people are very aware and in tune with how I originally interpreted those songs, if it's something that no one else has really heard, I'm able to have the freedom to take it out of context, to take it completely out of context and see how it can be interpreted as a song, out of character and having absolutely nothing to do with the show from which it came. If, for example, I'm singing, just say, pick a, pick a Broadway song, just random, anything. I could, any have danced, I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. Um, if I wanted to sing that song just in concert, I would not necessarily think of it as Eliza Doolittle singing it. Um, I might have the key changed to fit my voice. The arrangement might be changed to fit a more concert-type environment. Um, I know to have absolutely nothing to do with the love that she has for Professor Higgins. It might, it'll just be as a song and see where... I try to look at the lyrics. I try to look at where dramatically in its own little... Um, in its own little square box, which way it's going to go. Well, you, you would play Eliza Doolittle. I had, uh, yeah. 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 So would it be different than your stage performance, I guess? Probably. It probably would be different. More of a concert version. It would be more of a concert version. There would be... It would be me singing the song but as opposed to a character singing the but song. I, but I, I've read other interviews with you where you've said you're you're a talker. You sometimes think you talk too much. I talk a lot. Would you... Did you plan to talk and... To say why you're singing the song a different way than might have been sung on stage in, in um, a show? Not necessarily. I think the audience kind of comes in with an understanding that it's a concert. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be seeing necessarily all these different characters, you know, um, singing all these songs. Um, they'll just be singing me. They'll, see, mm-hmm. they'll be seeing me interpreting this material coming from all kinds of different shows. Because, sure. for example, there will be an interpretation of a song where in the show, it's sung with a very bitter edge, with a very hard and sarcastic or just sad um, context. But when you look at the lyrics, they're totally not sad. They're totally not bitter. Mm-hmm. So I can totally take it around and, and sing it in a different way. So mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And yeah. how much does having – you have a director. It's not just a concert. It's not just you going out and doing songs mm-hmm. with your musical director. Where does that input play into how you're putting this together? Um, the nice thing about having a director is he helps. He one, he's a different, he's a totally different person to be able to look from the outside to look in in a way to help me to kind of plan out the journey of the evening. Um, tells me to shut up when I have to. Mm-hmm. Tells me, okay, this doesn't work. Throw it out. Um, tells me this absolutely has to work, and you know, because cause he's seeing it, I guess, from an audience from an audience standpoint, um, kind of also pushing me to do what he knows he would like to hear or what he would like to see. Because I can't always see outside of myself sometimes sure. if I'm doing. Well, a you show. need somebody, some other perspective. Yeah, you're talking about Richard J. Alexander, mm-hmm. who has some degree of experience. He does the Bernadette Peters concerts. He's done mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand's uh, and Bette Midler. And Bette Midler, so uh, some degree of experience. Yeah, he's done the diva directing thing. <laughs> he's definitely Spe- has a lot of that. Under speaking his belt. of experience, now I've made reference that you were born in Manila. Yeah, it's a long way to Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. In between, you've had a few successes on the Broadway stage with right. Miz and with Flower Drum Song and touring companies and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your career get started? You wanted to be a doctor at one point. At one point, yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Um, I actually started my career when I was. Around six or seven. I auditioned for The King and I when I was six years old. I turned seven in rehearsal. Here Um, in New York? No, in the Philippines. In the Philippines. That's where it started. Uh And 
the love affair just kind of kept going. I kept doing musicals, like bit parts and other plays and what have and have whatever. Um, and then I was cast as Annie in a local production of it, which meant I had to wear the red wig and I had to <laughs> deal with a dog. Um, there was that, and I started doing records when I was about ten, and just kept doing that. Started doing film when I was around ten. Um, and well, that was pretty much it. And I just pretty much kept, just kept on going. And how med school came up, because I guess I was always encouraged to have a fallback, quote-unquote, position. And just in case this my, acting thing doesn't exactly, work out. Exactly. Just in case it doesn't work out. Just in case, you know, it, it fails or whatever. Then I could have a career that, you know, most people would recognize as an actual stable career. Can you help us put in context, because being typical ugly Americans, I'm sure most of us don't know what the theater scene is in the Philippines. So, you know, for any child to uh-huh. uh, succeed in the way that you did in an early age in any uh, culture is extraordinary. But what what were the opportunities and how large a theater scene was it? And again, you were mentioning... You know, your 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 breakthrough might have been Annie. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, the theater scene is actually much more active now than it ever used to be, um, but certainly not the way that the film industry in any country would be. Um, I mean, if you have a big star in a role, then definitely it will be a co- commercially viable and successful venture. If you have a lot of people that not too many people know, save for a small portion of the population that watches theater a lot, you know, then it's not as successful. Um, I mean, it, I don't know. It's a very star-driven, very star-driven But are industry. there a lot of theaters? Um, not so much that there are a lot of theaters, mm-hmm. per se. It's not like here where you can go all of Broadway and you can look left, look right, and you'll see theaters here, theaters there, and like three deep per mm-hmm. street. Um it isn't like that in the Philippines. You'll have um, you'll have a musical that will run maybe for five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks. A lot of the times the shows run only on the weekends um, because that's when kids will come and watch. That's when the adults can take the kids to come and watch. Um, sometimes, though, there will be seven shows a week. That's the most I probably would ever do. And all the shows that you've, you've mentioned to us certainly are American musicals. Mm-hmm. Are there indigenous... Filipino yeah, musicals are. along the same lines, yeah. or are they different different pieces? Um, they're actually fi- original Filipino musicals. I was just always in the theater company that produced exclusively American or English material um, because Repertory Philippines, its main thrust was to train the actors. It was not necessarily to encourage the creation of new pieces. There were other theater companies that did that and did them quite well. Um, Repertory was really into putting out excellent, professional, disciplined actors who were also incredibly talented. And so all of us who came from that theater company, when we go into a lot of other theater companies and see a lot of other people who may not have the same discipline or treat a show with as much care or professionalism, then we're like, oh, to be back in rep. Oh, we, you know, this is not the same as what is what it was. And we would all just start having discussions over coffee about about the olden days and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And 
you know, and and it's and I'm starting to sound like a 65 year old curmudgeon of a woman <laughs> for someone in their early 30s. <laughs> for someone in my early 30s, so it's it's it, interesting. If um, Harold and I were to visit at Manila or any city in the Philippines where the theaters performed, and we were to see one of the shows we've been talking about, an American show, Annie, or whatever the whatever. show is, um, would it be essentially the same show as we? It would, would see be here? essentially the same show. It would definitely be in English. Oh, oh. Um, it wouldn't be in Tagalog. I mean, there are theater companies that do stuff in Filipino, but there are a lot of theater companies that do a lot of American shows, and you will not hear an accent unless it's absolutely called for in in the show. You won't hear a Caribbean accent unless, of course, you're watching Once on this Island mm-hmm. or something, um, that kind of thing. And you'd the one thing that will strike anyone watching a Filipino musical is just the quality of the voices that are singing the songs. And I, when I watch a show, I'm thinking, how, how does this person do this? How? Mm-hmm. It's, this person is ridiculously talented. This person is just I- incredibly charming on stage and affecting and emotionally present and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, th- these people would have incredible careers in New York or in London. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's how talented I think are, a lot of the people are. Are the cast totally Filipino? Absolutely Filipino. If a non-Filipino, like say an American star, right. were to want to work there, would they be accepted? Um, once we got over the hump of their talent fees, which I'm sure would be uh-huh. exorbitant, <laughs> I think that there would be a lot of American stars that would enjoy it. There are a lot of those that go actually to the Singapore Repertory Theater as well to to work. Um, I think they'd have a good time. And I mean, it's a beautiful country. It's it's the people are extremely warm and hospitable, um, and the experience I think would just be life changing because it's just it's different. You know, there's people are there because they just want to do a show and want to put on the best show that they possibly can, um, and the teamwork aspect is also incredible. I mean, that's what I found when I do shows over there, and it's always it fuels me to keep going because it's. Reminds me of how much fun it actually is. Well, John's question, of course, was about Americans traveling to the Philippines to perform, mm-hmm. and you also just used the phrase life-changing. So I guess this seems to be the right point to ask you to take us back to the first time you got a phone call from somebody representing Cameron McIntosh saying, we've got this show and mm-hmm. we're doing an international uh, search. Right. What that must have been an extraordinary time for you. Well, as not really. Not really. I was as it progressed. But at the time that, well, my mom got the phone call um, from the president of the Singers Union who said, there are these auditions for this new show called Miss Saigon. And my mom was like, who are they? You know, and, and she's not somebody who's easily impressed. Um, you know, because the thing is, there are so many producers, quote unquote, that go to the Philippines and take advantage of these Filipino girls, saying that they're big Hollywood hotshot producers, and in- instead that they take advantage of these girls for sex or whatever. And she didn't want me to, she didn't want me to fall into a trap like that. So she was extremely protective, which parents should be. And you know, she's and then so the the person that she was talking to was like, no, 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 no. This is the same guy who did Cats. Mm-hmm. And once, once she said cats, it was like, oh, okay, then I, now it's a name that I recognize. Mm-hmm. We didn't recognize Phantom. We didn't recognize Les Mis. And you were still living in Manila. I was still living in the Philippines. And, and I was in my first year at university for pre-med. You were about 18 or so? 17. 17. I was 17. Yeah. Um, and so my mom was like, well, what about school? And so the person was telling her, she doesn't have the part yet. You know, think about it then if she gets it. 
And then I came home, and she told me the story, and I had the exact same question. Well, what about school? It's like, you know, you're not hired yet. You know, wait until then, and, and we'll figure it out when it happens. I'm like, okay. Um, and so I started preparing for my audition and met everybody, and everybody seemed very much on the level. So I didn't have any apprehension when I walked into the room. That was still in Manila? That was still in Manila. So, so they, they came they, to you? They came to the Philippines after having gone to New York, going through London, New York City, Los Angeles, and Honolulu, Hawaii, they landed in the Philippines and ended up with 15 people to cast to be cast in the show. But their first mission was to look for uh, a Kim for that. And so I went in, I sang a couple songs, I sang on my own, I sang The Greatest Love of All, and then I got called back. And... Then I started thinking that, wait, wait, wait a minute. The callback. <laughs> the, hmm. It's a callback. <laughs> what does that mean? You know, and then I just, and then I went back, I think a couple days later, and then they asked me to come back again the next day. And then I waited, I think, a couple weeks, and they brought us, they brought me and another girl over to London for what they, what they called final assessments, you know. And so I actually sang at the Theater Royal Drury Lane hmm. with a couple of other people who eventually got cast in the show. Um, and then I remember photo sessions. I remember them taking us out to lunch and saying, well, you're definitely cast in the show, but we just don't know who which, you're going to be. Part, yeah. I was extremely stoic. Um, I think even the Brits thought I was really stoic. And for <laughs> Brits to think I was stoic, is I, I must have been a brick wall. Um, you, were, you were still pinching yourself I was still, to see if you were awake. I was like... I didn't. This was not my priority in life, uh-huh. you know. Performing was not something that I had set my heart on to do for the rest of my life. I was going to be a doctor. I'm like, all right, this is going to be for like a year. This is a year of my life, and then I go back home, pick up where I left off, and get on with my life. And obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> Miss Saigon became a huge hit over in London and ran for uh, over ten years. Um, and then it came over to New York and became a huge hit as well here. So and, and you it, came over with it. And then I it. came over with mm-hmm. it. And, like, you know what? I, I, I think this is going to be my life for the rest of my life. This, 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 this could kind of work out. Yeah. I, I don't have to fall back on medicine anymore. <laughs> How much of the controversy that played out over here in terms of whether you could be cast, mm-hmm. how much of that were you either involved in how much of it was playing out because you were still doing the show in England I was still doing the point. show in England yeah so what what was that experience at that point it was a little surreal and everybody in the theater was kind of feeling obviously we were all feeling bad for for Jonathan Price when he was getting a lot of the heat um, because he was a member of, of our company and you know he was somebody that I had really enjoyed working with and thought I mean He's done Broadway before. Why don't they let him go? I mean, if he's supposed to be a star and he's got a Tony Award already anyway, I mean, wouldn't that make sense to bring him? Because um, it made sense to me because up until – I mean, they were bringing people from London to reprise their roles on Broadway. I mean, they brought over Cole Wilkinson and Francis Ruffell to do Les Mis. They brought over Michael Crawford to reprise The Phantom. So I thought by natural extension, and these were Cameron McIntosh's shows, they would be bringing um, the lead stars of this particular show to go over to New York and once the big brouhaha was starting I'm like oh well I guess the it wasn't a rule and perhaps it's not going to apply this time um, and so after they had solved the problem of Cameron of, of Jonathan Price I'm sorry um, going over to New York 
then it, the question of my casting came up, and Cameron was very, um, was very, was just very straightforward and said, um, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like you're going to be coming to New York, um, but we're trying and we're doing everything that we can. I mean, I want you to know that. And I said, you know what? You've done so much for me already. I don't think I could ask for much more than the opportunity that you've given to me. And, I mean, if it doesn't happen, then don't worry. I mean, I'll, I've got applications to drama schools here in England, and I'm going to be in the show for a while. So um, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done thus far. And um, then I went home to Manila. I, I ended my run in early December. I went home to do some concerts in the Philippines, kind of like a homecoming. And then not long after that, I got the news that I was going to New York. Well, just just recap. What was the brouhaha? What was the controversy? Well, the brouhaha, obviously, for, uh, for Jonathan Price, was that he was not an Asi- he was not an actor of Asian descent, mm-hmm. and therefore would not, or should not be playing a character of Asian mm-hmm. descent, of Eurasian descent. My case was a little different. I mean, okay, it's going to be an Asian role. Check. It's I'm an Asian actor. Check. I mean, where's the problem there? I was not a U.S. citizen or a U.S. resident. And, but you, that was the problem. And I'm like, okay, that makes no sense. <laughs> and it was Actors' Equity that was taking the uh-huh. position that mm-hmm. that possibly both of these actors should not be allowed to take these roles. As you say, yeah. with, with Jonathan, it was it was a peculiar situation because he had a history. And in fact, as you say, the part the part was a Eurasian character. He yeah. was he was, div- he and was he mixed created race. it, and he had just won the Olivier Award and received unanimously inc- wonderful reviews um, for for doing his role and he's a wonderful actor and he's you know he's not exactly a a beginner at this or anything you know hardly I mean I could understand my not being able to come and I was not I didn't have any expectations well how how was it finally resolved then that they did allow you to come over Uh, I have uh, boxes and boxes of arbitration documents sitting in my house in the Philippines And I keep them for souvenirs. The the attorney actually handed them over to me. Exhibit A to I don't know what. And he's like, these are this is everything that went into your casting of Kim and Miss Saigon. I'm like, Someday, wow. eBay items. eBay yeah. is going. I'm They're musical be, theater buffs. I will be able to retire <laughs> if I sell that on eBay um, well, one day. <laughs> well, Maybe not. I'm passing that on to my kids. You mentioned <laughs> that uh, that Jonathan Price had uh, received the Olivier Award. So did you receive yeah. for your performance in Miss Saigon. You also got the Tony, the Drama mm-hmm. Desk, a whole bunch of awards for it. And there's a big song that you sing or you sang as Kim in the show. Mm-hmm. Would you like to set that up for you? Let's, let's pretend this is you on stage at Carnegie Hall. Okay. You're about to do this uh, the song. <laughs> you can do the set up, the lead, and then we'll play the song. Okay. How do I set this up? Well, um, this is a song that was that I sang at the finale of Act One. And I always found it very peculiar that it was a big solo, but I I don't know. I always just found it peculiar. It was not an applause number in the conventional sense that a Broadway musical would have one of those numbers. I didn't have anything like that unless I shared it with somebody else, which made me a little sore. But at the end of the day, not really. Now, this was one of the very first songs I actually learned at my audition for Miss Saigon in Manila when I was 17. I just remember looking at looking at the lyrics and looking at everything and going, oh, my gosh, this woman goes through a lot in this show to be able to have such emotional, I don't know if it's fortitude or determination, but go through such an emotional journey singing singing this. And, like, it's, it's a lot in five minutes. It's a whole lot in five minutes. From Miss Saigon, the 
Broadway version as opposed to the London version because you're on both recordings. Mm-hmm. I'd give my life for you. Leia Salonga, our guest today on Downstage Center. Dawns on me, Leia, that as we're approaching uh, your Carnegie Hall concert, which is done in part as a benefit for a theater company here in New York, mm-hmm. Diverse City Theater Company, whose goal is to create opportunities for primarily Asian actors, or is it actors of it's all? It's just a- actors, period. Okay. Um, that's not an Asian theater company. Okay. But an opportunity for people to to get out and, and find opportunities. That after Miss Saigon, when you had become such a phenomenon, we didn't see you on stage here in New York quite so much. Yeah. And was that... A lack of opportunities? Was that by choice? What what played out there? Well, a lot of things played out there. Um, one, there is the lack of opportunity. I mean, I actually was told by, through my agent at the time, that a producer would not even see me for an audition because I was Asian. And this was after I had the Tony. So it was a little, it was a little, it was a landing on earth for me. And it basically told me, well, you have a Tony, but it doesn't always translate to more opportunities in the future. Because a lot of the time, a lot of performers think, oh, I have this, 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 and this, that it's going to keep them going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it doesn't always ring true. Um, As prestigious as the award is, um, it doesn't always mean that you get another job, you know. It doesn't always mean that, and it was a it was a reality check for me. But somebody had the the vision to cast you as Eponine in Le Mis, yeah, which was not an Asian role at all. No, no, it wasn't. And when I got the call from Richard J. Alexander, um, who was at the time working in Cameron McIntosh's office as one of his associate producers and executive producers, I had a, I was on a mission. I was on a mission to prove something. I had a point to prove that. I'm an Asian actor, sure. This is not an Asian role, right? But I'd like to think that I have the goods and that I have what it takes to do this part and do it well. And that my casting would not be considered stunt casting for the sake of publicity, that it would not be, you know, casting just to say, look, we're doing this, blah, 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 blah. It's, I'd like to think that it was a matter of casting me on merit and purely on merit that, you know, she can sing the song. She can sing the song and be effective in the role and make you forget that she is an Asian actor up there, that she's not going to stand out. Um, like, oh, there's there's the one Asian, the token Asian girl in the show. Mm-hmm. You know, because I didn't want that. I didn't want to have that title of being the token Asian girl in any cast. I want If I wanted to be in a company, I wanted to be because I had the chops to actually sing the material. So when I was also cast to do the Dream Concert at the Royal Albert Hall, one, I was thrilled because these were incredible performers, many of them from the original companies in either London or in New York. And I was like, oh, my gosh, these are people that I listen to on the cassettes and on the CDs and whose pictures I, I've seen on, on, on all this kind of stuff in the souvenir programs and in the liners and everything. And I'm actually going to sit beside a lot of these people. And I was just thrilled and I was thrilled. But at the end of the day, I, I wanted to prove myself also to everybody on that stage as well as to everybody in that hall that I'm here because 
I'd like to think I deserve to be here. Because you deserve to be up on the same stage yeah. as all these others, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously shows like uh, Flower Drum Song or Miss Saigon call for an Asian actor in right. those roles. Um, are you finding it now difficult to get other roles that don't call for Asian ac- actors? I think it's just difficult for any actor to get any role now. There's so much competition. Not 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 because of stereotyping or you know no, not, so not much the right look for the role. Yeah. Just, just I mean, general even, competition. Even among Asian roles, uh-huh. I will not get it because I'm either not Chinese enough or not Japanese enough or whatever. Um, which I'll acknowledge because my eyes are round like saucers. So I'm like, <laughs> no, I do not look Japanese. I will totally not get this part. And I was actually in LA auditioning for I think a Japanese part and my acting teacher's like Go in anyway. I mean, show them that you're funny. Show them that you can actually do this kind of stuff um, just so that they'll remember you and they'll cast you for something else maybe next time, you know, if they need somebody that looks like you and does what you do. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I went in with that kind of attitude and I made the casting director laugh and I made everybody else at that table laugh. So I figured, you know what? He was right. I mean, I know I'm not going to get cast for this, but... Who cares? At this point, I just wanted to go in and prove, I guess, more to myself than to anybody else that I could do this. Well, John mentioned it glancingly, but Flower Drum Song certainly was another major opportunity for you, and certainly an ironic one in that most people don't realize that Flower Drum Song, which has an entirely Asian cast of characters, Mm -hmm. had not been performed by an entirely Asian cast yeah. on Broadway. Its original production had Caucasians mm-hmm. had playing, playing Asian roles. Um, so with the issues that we're talking about, you had an opportunity in America to be in certainly what was one of the, was the first all-Asian cast on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you all talked about, getting that experience? I think it was something we were all conscious of, but there was just so much work that we needed to do that we really, I don't remember having a huge lengthy, drawn-out discussion with anybody regarding that. I mean, I think everybody was just excited to be doing a Broadway show, um, excited to be part of an all-Asian company. And we were all just excited that this was something, in a way, was kind of um, groundbreaking because I don't think there was ever a fully Asian company on Broadway before, maybe of Pacific anything, of probably. anything, Pacific Overtures, oh, yes. certainly. No, even Pacific Overtures, I think, had a couple of smaller yeah. roles. But but when we talk about the flower drum, it's worth noting that the show was retooled. Mm-hmm. It was not the the it was not the original that no. was originally done, and so the experience of that and working with David Henry Huang, it was like working on a new show. It was just like working you on You just didn't show. have the composers around. Yeah, we just didn't have R&H, and that, that would have been something, you know? <laughs> that, that would have been something, because up until that point, I was used to being able to, you know, refer to either a lyricist or to the composer and, and have them be able to tell me what it is they required of me. Like, if, if there was a song that Claude Michel wanted a certain voice, like, I want you to sound like a bird in this song or something, and he'll... You know, and I'll be like, okay, uh, more bird-like, got it, you know. And um, for this song, I want you to sound like this. You have to be more passionate when you are a bit creased or whatever. And he's, he's my fav- one of my favorite people. Um, so, yeah, I would have that. I'd have the composer tell me what he wanted. And I could all I had to do was just follow the instructions. But with this, because it was a reinterpretation of this material, because it was a revisiting of Flower Drum Song as opposed to reviving the show as it was as originally written it was like doing a brand new show but we didn't have 
Rogers and Hammerstein to be there to kind of guide us musically. And so I guess we, we had definitely the R&H organization well, to help us out with a lot of that in keeping with the spirit of how they would have wanted it to be sung. Just as we talked a moment ago about the controversy of you coming from London to New York in, in La Miz, um, I Miss Saigon, I'm sorry, Miss Saigon, uh, there was some controversy associated with Flower Drum because of the rewrite. Had you been familiar with the original 1958 version of it? I saw Had the you, film, yeah. but I'm even thinking even a, a screenplay would be ever so slightly different from yeah, yeah. from the way it was originally presented well, it was stage. it was quite dated even back in 1958. It was probably fairly right. dated. Um, how do you, as an Asian, look at both different versions, the original version and the version you did? Well, if I was, say, somebody who was watching the 1958 version, well, um, that's how a lot of people thought Asian people were like. And so it was that's, that's kind of a reflection of how a lot of people thought, um, which may have been right, which may have been wrong. And the revisiting, I guess, was a more, I hate to use the word politically correct, but that's probably the best way to put it. It was written, it was revisited and and rewritten by an Asian playwright, by David Henry Wong, who probably would be the best person as an Asian American to do this because he's coming from the point of view of a lot of the people in the show, Um, you know, being of Asian American descent um, and, and, you know, being in this country. So... He was, you definitely was the right person. But then it's, there was so much that we had to be conscious of. There was, you know, how will other Asians perceive the new material? Will it change the way people view us as a community? Um, you know, is our people, is this going to resonate with people? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were all these, I guess there were all these questions that I had in my head and that other people probably had in their heads as well. And, and there's because it's an all Asian company. I'm coming from a point of view of an immigrant. I'm not coming from the point of view of someone who was brought up here, raised here. Talk, talk, talk about the character in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's that's also kind of my situation because I was born and raised in the Philippines. I was born and raised in a country where I was a member of the majority, mm-hmm. where I looked around at every at everybody. I would be in church and everybody looked like me. Mm-hmm. I then I came to London when I was 18, moved to New York when I was 20. And it was a whole different kettle of fish, a whole yeah. different kettle of fish. So that's what I brought to May Lee, being in a country where she's no longer a member of the majority, um, but finding herself in a kind of comfortable place because everybody around her looks Asian, however, does not act that way. And there's a line that Sandra Allen, as Linda Lowe, she says in the show, we all want to be Americans just like everyone else. Just to fit in. Just to fit in. We just want to be part of this country. And I think that line, more than any other thing in the show, more than any other thing, I think that kind of summarized exactly what a lot of people of color, what a lot of minority uh, people feel. You know, we just want to be part of this country. We came here to fulfill dreams. We came here to get a better life. And... You know, a lot of people are finding themselves disenchanted so by that dream. So, so were, were you happy with the way the show ultimately ended up? I was. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed doing it every day. I enjoyed seeing those costumes. I enjoyed singing the songs. Well, it was beautifully staged. It was beautifully staged. Um, it was also really beautifully staged when we did it in L.A. It was a much different show uh-huh. because it was in a, it was a thrust. Uh-huh. So we had three sides of people to play to, uh-huh. which made it really intimate. And that's that's probably the one thing that I missed about doing the show in New York as opposed to in L.A. Okay, well, let's say you're back on the stage at Carnegie Hall Monday yeah. evening mm-hmm. doing your solo concert, 
and you're going to do one of your big numbers from Flower Drum Song. Absolutely. Love Look Away. You're going to yeah. do that in the show, I hope? I'm doing that in the show. How are you going to introduce that? Then we'll, we'll play the song. Well, I'll definitely introduce the song as coming from the brand new revisited version of Flower Drum Song, um, which I was a part of, fortunately. Um, and it's original. It's a song originally sung by a character named Helen Chow in the original production, but they gave it to Mei Li, which made me happy because it's probably one of the most beautiful songs ever written by Rodgers and Hammerstein. That's the best way I can set it up. The Rodgers and Hammerstein classic from Flower Drum Song, Love Look Away, Leia Salonga as Mei Li. We've been talking all about musicals, and there was one interesting credit that I saw that I wanted to ask you about, which is that you did Proof. Yes. That was in the Philippines? Uh-huh, that was in the Philippines. And again, was that an English-language production? It was in English. It was the original David Auburn script. Doing that show there, were there cultural differences in terms of that material translating? Not really, no. I mean, wherever they would laugh here, they would laugh there, except maybe when there were particular references to, say, the Cubs losing or things like that. Not everybody in the Philippines knows who the Cubs are, and unless you're, <laughs> if you're from Chicago or if you're just from here, a big baseball fan, then obviously you'll know who they are. In the Philippines, though, no, it's not that, it's not, there are certain references, obviously, that don't translate. And in doing that work, again, understanding the profile, I mean, I've read interviews where you've said, you know, in the Philippines, you are a big star. Shop people know who you are, you walk down the street and you're recognized. Was that role seen in any way as a change of pace for you? I think people were just not used to to seeing me blurt out as many F words as (laughs) in one night. Um, But I felt that it was something I needed to do for me more than for anybody else. Um, if it meant that I was going to fall flat on my face on stage in front of how many people every night, you know what? So be it. If it works, then great. If anything, it was the it was a and it was an incredible learning experience for me, because I couldn't depend on my singing for an hour and a half or two hours. I couldn't. I couldn't sing my way out of this, and so it was scary, but at the same time extremely empowering because I, at the end of the run. You know, I went from one place to another place, and by the end of the run, I felt, you know what, I don't have to always sing to be able to make somebody feel something or affect another person. And I just I just felt that at the end of that run, like I could do another few more weeks or a few more months of this because we only had a three-week run, and I was only just starting to get it under my belt. And so the four of us in the cast were like, I wish we had more time. But I, I learned a lot doing it. I really did. And I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to do it. Well, we've been talking about your stage work. I should mention you also have done television as the world turns. Mm-hmm. You've done films, a couple of Disney films. Mm-hmm. You've done the singing voice of uh, Princess Jasmine in Aladdin. Yeah. How's working in film? Um, I, I know well, this, working this, this, in this, animation. This is animation, so it's your yeah. voice. Not this your, is a whole, that's yeah. a whole different ballgame yeah. to work in animation. And there's no pressure on you to look good at all. And even at my audition, it was a little bizarre because everybody had their head down, looking at the table and not even looking at me. And and they warned me prior to me singing. They said, "Um, we're not going to look at you. Um, And please don't take offense at that because we just want to listen to your voice. We don't really need to see your face. So I said, okay. That's different. (laughs) That's different. You know, so and it's a good thing too because I was not particularly pretty that day. I remember. Well, well, you, you you said somewhere in an interview that there are two things you have to be: you have to be a good singer, and you have to look attractive because you're up there in front of audience. So yeah, here, exactly. You could show up in sweats and not oh, worry about. Oh my gosh, it. you can show up in pajamas yeah. and do the work. 
but then, of course, knowing that there's always going to be some behind-the-scenes footage, I better dress like a human being. <laughs> I better dress decently and and at least, you know, appear professional. You know, I, I couldn't walk in with bunny slippers and and my striped flannel pajamas, not not to yeah. a Disney recording session. Um, and it was it was just an incredible experience because then I had to really focus all of my energy on my voice, which was great because it was liberating. I didn't have to think about facial expression in the context of a camera in front of me, or movement, or you know, or movement, or choreography, or anything. I could be yeah. the the biggest klutz and 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 do this well, which is which is a dream, which is great. So we did the song with a 75-piece orchestra in a studio, which was a thrill. The song being a whole new world. The song being a whole new world. Um, It's two minutes, but it's one of the greatest two minutes of my life because now I'm really big with everybody under the age of four. It's it's really cool. (laughs) It's really, really cool. Great. How would you set that up at Carnegie? How would I set that up? I'm not even sure if I'm singing it, but if I would... I guess I would just set it up as the song that makes me really big with everybody under the age of four. It's a song, certainly, that that's changed my life in the fact that I've I never thought that I would one day be a D- Disney princess, and for those two minutes, I get the chance to be one. Well, Monday evening at Carnegie Hall, you get a chance to do a solo concert. Mm-hmm. What comes after that? Any well, future plans? Well, after that, I think I'm going to go on vacation for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to spend some time with my family um, before concertizing again. I have some concerts scheduled in the Philippines at the end of the year and at the beginning of next year. And then after that, we'll see where the wind takes me. Go on vacation. Do some knitting on vacation. Probably. Play I, have, some, I still have a few scarves that I have to finish. Play, you know? play some video games. Absolutely. You're big on video games. I'm big on World of Warcraft right now. My husband got me into it because his friends got him into it. And it's it's incredibly addicting. <laughs> because once you start on a quest, you just have to finish the quest. And then you gain experience points. And then you get to meet other people who kind of help you with a quest. Because, you know, one of you was maybe a warrior. The other one is a druid. And then you kind of <laughs> help each other out. And it, it gets complicated. And then... My husband actually showed me some of these music videos that other people would make when they have these guilds that have 20 or 30 people as part of it, and they soundtrack some rock music to it, and you see them all running in slow-mo, and it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> it's its crazy, but it's its fun. It's a lot of fantasy fun. Have you decided what you're going to wear at Carnegie yet? Definitely. I've already decided on a dress by Carmen Mark Valvo, and the other is just a very simple suit that I have that's, that was made for me by a Filipino designer named Rajo Laurel, who's been a friend of mine since I was um, about seven. And today you're wearing day glow yellow green running I'm shoes. I'm wearing uh, very, very yellow green Puma shoes that have no, it's, it's got like a Velcro closure, and they're very popular because they're extremely comfortable. I assume those will stay in the closet for Carnegie Hall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to distract people and let them only look at my feet. I want them to hear my voice. Well, Leia Salonga, thanks for being with us and have a lot of fun at Carnegie oh, on I Monday will. evening. I totally will. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Leia. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the media and educational work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.